I'm Scott Logson. I'm one of the pastors here at Tyson's and just want to welcome you to our worship time this morning together. Uh, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. Before we do, let me just pray for us uh, one more time. Father, it's beyond all of us to fathom all that the work of Christ on the cross entails. And that's why we must go there to that deep well and gaze at our Savior. And Father, we ask that as we do, would you cause our hearts to savor him, to see him, like James just prayed, to see your glory in the face of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, about 20 years ago now, uh, God opened the way for me and Cindy and our two girls to move to Central Asia where we lived and we served. We lived there for 12 years, raised our, our daughters in a city that was predominantly Muslim. We love where we lived. We miss so many things about it and about living there, uh, especially the friends that we made. You know, everywhere that we've lived, We've seen events occur that garner national or even international headlines, and uh, things like a crime that targets a particular subset of the people, or at least appears to do so. And sometimes when that happens, the effects can be far-reaching, right? Not only does the person targeted in the crime feel the effects of that crime, but their immediate family can feel the effects of it. They can experience some trauma, and sometimes even the effects of fear can spread out to every member of society who happens to be like them. They can all feel vulnerable. Well, something like that happened where we lived in a context, uh, just to give you a feel what it was like a little bit, where the government officials would say things like missionary work is even more dangerous than terrorism and unfortunately is not considered a crime here. Well, as you can imagine, when government officials make statements like that, then crimes against Christians increase. And every Christian becomes suspect. And so it was in this context that one day, five young men who had pretended to be interested in Christianity entered a small publishing house and tied up and murdered the three Christian men who were working there and whom they had pretended to befriend. I had met one of the Christians a year before at a Christian conference, but otherwise I didn't have any connection to them whatsoever. And yet, as soon as I heard about their murders, a wave of fear came over me. Well, the very next morning after the murders, the newspapers had a new headline. They'd been trying to get a statement from one of the people who was closest to the murders, the wife of one of the men. And she said simply, her statement, I forgive the murderers of my husband the way Christ forgave his murderers, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. With that one incredible sentence, that sister shattered our fear. She, who should have been expressing the greatest hurt and fear of all, chose rather to focus on Christ 
on the cross rather than her fear. And in so doing, she turned the gaze of an entire country to Christ. Ed Welch, in his book, Shame Interrupted, describes shame like this. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you've done or something done to you or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Shame can leave us feeling dirty, contaminated, worthless. Shame is an effect of sin. Maybe a stronger way to describe shame is as a deep sense of disgrace because you have acted less than human or you've been treated as if you were less than human or you were associated with something that was less than human. And most important, there were witnesses to it. See, we've all experienced shame whether because we sinned or we were sinned against, but we didn't all know what to do with it. And some of us are carrying heavy burdens into this worship service today, whether in this room or at one of our locations. Some of us, some of us are suffering the effects of sin, and we don't even know it. We just have this sense that something's not right. Well, there are no easy answers when it comes to shame. These are usually our deepest wounds, and deep wounds are not often healed immediately, but what we're going to see is that God loves to heal even deep wounds. Today, we'll see that the Bible has much to say about the deep wounds of sin and shame, yes, even the ones that we carry. When you feel ashamed, you will want to know where you can turn to start addressing it. Where is shame ultimately addressed. I think we're going to find some answers in our text today, Mark 15, 21 to 32. If you have your Bible, please turn to Mark 15, 21 to 32. In this text, we'll see how God doesn't ignore the rawness of sin, and He doesn't expect us to either. Instead, He provides deliverance. Mark 15, 21 to 32. First, we'll see how the cross shows the depths of God's love for you. And then we'll see how the cross shows God wants to exchange your sin, your shame, with glory. And then we'll close with an application. Mark 15, 21 to 32. Starting in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The cross and the act of the crucifixion is written about literally all over the Bible. The cross is the content of Christian preaching. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross is also controversy. Paul said the cross is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. I found that was the case with the Muslims that we used to live among, where our family lived. My best friends, who were all Muslim, they would talk to me about the cross, and in particular Christ and the crucifixion, and they would say, we love Jesus more than you do because you Christians say Jesus died on the cross, but we say he didn't. See, mostly they believe that God would never allow someone who pleases him to suffer, especially such a horrible death like the crucifixion. So the cross is a stumbling block today, too, and I suspect to more than just our Muslim friends. But for all these reasons, the cross demands our attention. Hebrews 12 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So first, let's look here in Mark 15. Let's Let's see how the cross shows the depths of Christ's love for you. And that's because it shows what he is willing to suffer to cover our shame. Let's set the scene. Let's remind ourselves quickly what has taken place. So, verse 21 begins, it's Friday morning before 9 a.m., just last evening. Jesus was enjoying his last moments with his disciples. And sometime after sundown, one of his closest friends, one who had traveled with him, who he had enjoyed meals with, betrays him with a kiss of all things. Have you been betrayed? Jesus knew betrayal. Then the rest of the disciples all run away. Have you ever felt abandonment? Jesus knew abandonment. One of his very best friends, Peter, one of the inner three disciples, denies he ever knew Jesus. Not once. I mean, maybe that would be a slip-up. But three times. Which is worse, to be betrayed or to have someone you love deny that they ever even knew you? Friends, Jesus knew isolation And then he's taken to a trial, which is a mockery. And he's the victim of injustice. When he finally is charged, it's for stating the truth of exactly who he is. He's rejected not in spite of who he is, but because of it. This man, our king, no way. And then they treat him as unclean and they spit on him and begin to physically torment him with demeaning beatings. And this happens all through the night. There's no food or water or rest. 
by morning exhausted. He's taken before Pilate, who even though there's no credible charge against him, fails to use his authority to protect the innocent and uphold the justice for this man. Instead, he gives in to the mob, let him be crucified. Crucified. The Romans had fine-tuned crucifixion to create as much pain in the victim as possible, but our focus won't be on the physical torment of crucifixion because Mark doesn't emphasize it. Instead, in verse 24, he just says quickly, and they crucified him. Instead, Mark uses all of his words to focus our attention on the depths of mockery and shame that he suffered. Well, let's notice first that this isn't just an execution. There are bystanders. This is not a quick, lethal injection in a small room of onlookers, as bad as that would be. This is a public demonstration. Jesus is publicly paraded by the soldiers, the 300 to 600 yards, we're not exactly sure, through a crowded part of the city to a place just outside the city where there is sure to be lots of cross traffic. They were designing this for maximum visibility. Crucifixion was both a warning and a deterrent. If you commit what this man committed, you will suffer the same fate. And this is why they placed the charge against him on the cross. Verse 26, king of the Jews. The irony, of course, is that if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and the King of Israel, then it is the chief priests and everybody involved in this scene that we've just read about who are committing treason and blasphemy against him. Either way, they take him and they execute him outside the city walls because he's obviously too unclean, too unworthy to die in the city. Verse 24, when they arrive at the site of execution, they strip him leave him mostly naked and exposed to the gaze of onlookers, which is an ultimate humiliation for a Jewish man. And then they lay claim to what was his by casting lots for it. The casting of lots for his clothes is an allusion to Psalm 22, which Mark will directly quote later on in verse 34. But hold your finger in Mark 15 and turn quickly to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm that was written 1,000 years before Christ by the King David. And the Holy Spirit is telling us through David, he's giving us a picture of the Christ on the cross. 1,000 years before the crucifixion. It probably would be good for you later on to read the entire psalm, but right now, I just want to focus our attention on just a couple of verses. Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Again, this is a thousand years before the crucifixion, hundreds of years before crucifixion, crucifixion is even invented. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's the soldiers. Look up at Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. 
All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These two verses are referring to the bystanders who join in the mocking. Let's turn back to Mark 15. Verse 30, where we see what the bystanders are saying. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The chief priests, you notice, they mock him in the same way, almost using the same words, and so do the robbers. All of these groups are joining into the humiliation of our Savior. And I say Savior because their humiliation stems around that term, save He's a savior. He had saved others. He had saved a man on the Sabbath, Mark tells us earlier in his gospel. He had saved Jairus' daughter. He had saved a woman who had snuck up, eager just to touch the fringe of his cloak, which now belongs to one of the soldiers. And countless others, Mark tells us, who touched the barest fringe of the clothes that he wore. They couldn't deny that he had saved others. Now they say, sure, he saved others, but he can't save himself. So Mark wants us to believe that the Christ is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Son of Israel, But Mark also wants us to notice how the king responds to blasphemers and to murderers and to tormentors and betrayers or even to abandoning and denying disciples like Peter and the rest. He responds with silence, even as he endures it to save them. The Bible says Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced. That prophets and righteous people longed to look and see him and hear him. Well, here is his day. Here he is, rejected and despised by a people who, by the way, only exist because he led them out of Egypt. utterly mocked by those who use words that only come because he continues to give them breath. See, the king of kings is going to greater depths than many of us imagined to save many. What is going on here? Why does it have to be this way? It's because our sin has greater consequences than we can imagine. By enduring shame on the cross, God is showing us that sinful people are weighed down with shame. So the Savior must swallow it all up. You have shame. 
I have shame. We all do. All sinful people understand the experience of, of shame, and God is doing something important with our shame at the cross. Shame is the result of sin, and it leaves a deep sense that you are either outcast or exposed and can't be covered, or that you are unclean and so dirty, completely contaminated, that you are worthless. It can be a byproduct of those who have experienced adultery, of those who are suffering addiction. Shame can be felt by those who feel pressure from parents or who feel like they don't measure up or who have experienced failure in their careers or their jobs. Students who are unkind to other students can create a sense of shame or even just real wrongs done against you, assault or harm or even petty crimes can create a sense of shame. And these can become deep wounds that we carry. But in the beginning, it was not this way. Do you remember? The very beginning of creation, how God created humans, our first parents, Adam and Eve, as the pinnacle of creation. And he named them as king and queen with dominion over all of creation. And they were naked and not ashamed. But then they sinned against God and they disobeyed his command in Genesis 3. And they immediately felt something in themselves they had never experienced before. They felt exposed. And so they made clothes for themselves. And yet they still felt exposed because when God came, they still hid themselves. Somehow the effect of sin lingered and they felt exposed because, hear me, church, their attempts to cover themselves didn't work. Their problem was not physical. And so physical clothes or physical actions were not going to cover a spiritual problem. They needed God, the one that they hid from, to help cover them. This is what sin does to us. Amen. Satan is a master at creating shame to keep us from God. Amen. But he is exactly, God is exactly the one to deal with it. And he did on the cross. Yes. The cross is showing us this, that whatever effects of sin you are suffering from, Look at how Christ, the Son of God, the King of Israel, on the cross, subjected himself to shame for you and for me. Amen. Christ died not just for little sins and not just for big sins, but for all sins, even those sins that bring great shame. This is our Christ. This is our Savior. This is our King and our God. Here we see the depths of Christ's love for you, that he would identify with us even in our shame. Right? Christ, he, he could have easily just died quietly without a public humiliation for our sins, but instead he was broken and mocked for us in every way, even as we are. 
This is his love for you. So we see how the cross shows the depths of God's love for you. Now let's see, though, how the, how, uh, the cross shows that God wants to replace your shame with glory. It wasn't to embrace shame that Christ died. He despised the shame. Instead, he endured the cross with focus on the joy that was before him. What was that joy? Turn to Isaiah 54. Again, keep your finger in Mark, Mark 15. And let's look at Isaiah 54. This is a passage that is written 700 years before Christ, but even though it was written before Christ, it interprets for us what's happening on the cross, what Christ is accomplishing. Last week, we saw how Isaiah 53 explains to us details about Christ's death. Well, Isaiah 54 is the next part of the story. Once the suffering servant has made the many righteous and bore their sins, the next chapter, Isaiah 54, bursts into song about the glory-filled results of his death. Here, Isaiah is telling us what Christ's suffering accomplishes for his people. And to set this up, we have to understand that God uses a metaphor to explain what condition that we are in in our sin. He compares us in our sin to a woman in ancient Israel. Not just any woman, but to one who has been completely rejected. She has no husband, no children. In ancient societies, it was significantly different than it is today. If you were husbandless, that would mean you were powerless against every form of oppression and violation. You have no way to get a job to provide yourself. And then if, in addition, you have no children then in ancient society, that's to go through life completely alone without anyone to help provide for you. So God is saying sin has left us like someone with no protection, with no help, all alone, rejected. And importantly, it's not before others. It's before God that we are this way. But for those who see what Christ did on the cross and believe in him, then our story is forever changed. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Verse 3. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. He doesn't say the shame of your youth was nothing. Instead, he says, what I'm going to do for you will outshine everything that has been done to you. 
He doesn't say you don't have great wounds. He says, I will give you one day, one day it's coming. I will give you something that is so much greater that you won't think of your past ever again. If you've ever felt shame, this word is salve. It's healing. Look at verse 5. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have made him your Lord and your Savior, let these words wash over you today. Verse 5, Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel, he's your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. you might be thinking, it sounds too good to be true. My shame is too great. What future glory could possibly swallow that up? Let's add to what we've read. Here's what Jesus promises to do for you and for all who believe in him. Matthew 10, 32 says this, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Don't miss what he is saying here. The concept here is lesser to greater. If you will claim me before a lesser audience, men, on a lesser stage, earth, then I will claim you before the greatest audience there ever was, my Father, on the greatest stage there ever was, in heaven, surrounded by myriads of angels and worshipers of the great King in his throne room, and I will live with you forever there. There's a warning there, too. Those who deny me on this lesser stage, I will deny on the real stage. Friend, let's respond to Jesus, and he promises he will not be ashamed to associate with you before the holy presence of God in his throne room. And we will have him forever. He is the glory he wants to give us. He himself, Jesus wants to take your shame and deal with it with his holiness in the glory of God's presence forever. That's what the cross shows us. And you might be thinking, but can he really forgive me? I have so much sin. Let's show that he can from Mark 15. We've seen the mockers. We've seen the blasphemers and the murderers there. What we haven't seen is how some of them turned and received his forgiveness by faith. The soldiers are one of the primary actors in our passage. They mocked, they blasphemed him, they murdered him. And at least one of them who took part in Christ's execution, sees all this humiliation that Christ suffered 
and as a result of what he sees, believes in Christ. In verse 39, he says, truly, this man was a son of God. When it comes to those who are passing by, history tells us that one of those bystanders becomes a follower of Christ. In fact, the main bystander, Simon. It's likely that the reason Mark provides the strange detail about Simon, where he's from and the names of his two sons, is because Simon is eternally impacted by what he saw that day in how the Messiah suffered in his crucifixion. He saw and he believed. And so Simon and his sons were known to Mark's readers at the time because they were part of the church. And Simon's son Rufus was likely the, the same Rufus that the Apostle Paul references in Romans 16, 13. Well, verse 27 tells us he was crucified with two robbers. Well, what about them? One on his right, one on his left. Well, Luke records for us in his gospel how one of those robbers later repented and believed and said, Jesus, remember me whenever you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, guess when that is? It's today. Today, I'm receiving a kingdom. You see, we thought we were witnessing a crucifixion. Turns out this is a coronation. Keep looking. What about the priests? They were the ones who said in verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They're saying, show us so we can see and then we'll believe. Now, of course, the irony is if Christ had called any of the legions of angels who were waiting at his disposal and had come down from the cross, they certainly would have seen. But their belief would have been in vain because their sin would have been left, remained unatoned for. And regardless, you say, show us and we'll believe. The soldier saw and he believed. Simon the bystander saw and believed. The robber saw and believed. And Jesus did come down from the cross and three days later rose from the dead. Did they believe then? Some did. Acts 6, 7 says this. And the word of God continued to increase and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the what? Priests became obedient to the faith. Friends, do you realize every group involved in this awful scene will have at least someone representing them around the throne in the new heavens and the new earth, singing praises to the Lamb of God who suffered for their pardon, who took their shame so that they could enjoy Him in glory. But there's one more group that we haven't mentioned. Christ also endured shame to provide forgiveness for those who aren't in this scene because they had abandoned and denied Him. I'm looking at you, Peter, James, and John, and the rest. When Mark tells us of the robbers, one on his right and one on his left, he wants us to remember two other men who had asked to be in this exact situation. Do you remember? Mark 10, 37, James and John said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. He said, can you drink my cup? 
Well, where are James and John now? They had abandoned him hours before, yet here he is in his glory. They are nowhere to be seen. But this is just like he said it would be to them. You will all fall away, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He says, you'll all abandon me, but I'll ransom your souls, and then we'll huddle up back in Galilee. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Eric led us through Jesus reinstating the denier, Peter, as a disciple. We see Jesus after his, resurrecting doing, after his resurrection doing just as he said and reinstating all of his disciples except the one, the son of perdition, who was lost because of, it was foretold. He took all of their uncleanness to clean them. Even when their, think about it, even when their abandonment of him is most imminent, he's thinking of his joyful reunion with them. Christ endured the cross by focusing on the joy that was set before him. Yes, the joy of his vindication by the Father sitting at his right hand. He had experienced that joy before, but there was, there was a joy he was, he was looking forward to that was new, and that is the joy of being with us, with his people, clean, without shame, accepted, covered before the Father forever. This is the focus of our Lord in his shame, his people who he came to ransom. I know you, you think you've got great sin. The Bible says God demonstrates his love for us in this way. He didn't wait for us to become sinless or righteous or lovely he, to, and then die for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You mean Christ died for Barabbas? Christ died for a church of Barabbases. Even for those who literally murdered him. Even for those who actually blasphemed him right there at the act. Mocked him while he was on the cross. So friend, no, I don't know what you have done what sin you have committed, what shame you are carrying. But I know this, you didn't murder the Son of God. But the cross teaches us that even if you had, His payment is big enough for you. He's not ashamed of you. He loves you. And he's calling you to associate with him so that he will associate with you. Claim him now. He will claim you then publicly before the piercing gaze of God. This is the picture of God's love for you. He accepts you. Come to him, all you who feel betrayed. Come to him who was betrayed. He will never leave you or forsake you. Come, you who feel abandoned. He will never leave you alone. Come, you who feel rejected and cast off. He is not ashamed to accept you into his presence and adopt you as his child forever. You feel unjustly treated. He, the judge who was unjustly treated, will right all wrongs done to you. 
you feel exposed and unlovely, he will take you in and cover you with his beauty in a way you've only dreamt was possible. You feel dirty, he will clean you whiter than snow and forgive your guilt. He wants to take your shame and he wants to give you great glory in return. Praise God. Praise God. So we've seen how the the cross shows the depths of God's love for you. How the cross shows how God wants to take our shame and exchange it for glory. What shall we do with these things? Here's what I'd like to suggest. If you're here this morning in this room watching online. You're suffering from an experience of shame. Please hear the message of the cross. Christ didn't suffer so that you could continue in your shame. He doesn't want shame to define you anymore. Now, if you are not a Christian here today, then determine today you will repent and place your faith in Christ. If you'd like to talk more about that, please find a pastor after this service and talk to them. Find a staff member. Go to the welcome desk at your location or across the lobby here after the service. Ask one of the other Christians in this room. I promise they would love to talk with you about this. And if you're here and suffering from a burden of shame as a Christian, let me take a few moments and pray together that God would help us give our shame to him and receive his glory. Maybe you feel shame because of sins that you've committed. Hear the cross. Christ is able to forgive you, to bring you into his presence. Maybe you feel shame because of a wrong done to you. Hear the cross. Christ knows what your pain is like, and he can help. He died so that he can one day clothe you in glory. Either way, Christian, you're not alone. You are welcome here. We have pastors, church group members, who want to be a tangible expression of God's love and grace to you. Here's what you can do. It's simple, but it's only powerful if you decide to do it. Shame is meant to be carried in relationship. So identify someone right now that you can tell of the burden that you're carrying. Ask them to walk with you and to pray with you. share our burdens with each other and pray for each other that we may be healed. This is what church groups are made for. If you want to talk to a counselor, our counselors are ready to talk to you. You can write them at counseling at But if we will do this and share together, then every Christian in this room 
either invites another Christian, preferably someone in your church group, to share whatever burden you're carrying, or else you are preparing yourself to receive that burden from someone else, to walk with them and pray with them every day so that our primary gaze together will be on Christ. Let's resolve together, church, that shame will not have the final word in our story, but that we will turn our attention to Christ. You remember the three Christian men I talked about who lived where we lived, who lost their lives because they were Christians. Their wives could have been consumed in bitterness and revenge. Just because they chose to forgive didn't mean their, their wounds immediately went away. But they knew what medicine to put on top. They focused their gaze on Christ. And as they did, even in such a fresh wound, words of healing began to spill out even to their husband's murderers. Their forgiveness ended up creating a hunger throughout the country that none of us expected. Remember how I said that Christians were all suspect? Well, suddenly Christians were being sought out as their Muslim friends were asking, how can we convert from Islam to Christianity? Church, the world is suffering from the effects of sin and shame, and they need to hear of our all-powerful Savior who can bring healing and restoration to them. So tell them. Let's point them to Christ, the one who took our shame, so that they too can find glory in Him, the glory that they long for, the glory of the Son of God, the Savior, and the King. Let's pray together. Father, we know that your word says the sufferings of this present time are unworthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. Father, you said we are sheep among wolves here, and we feel that. But your word also says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. So, Father, now grab our attention in this moment with his love. Take our shame, O oh God, and heal us in your Son. As we continue praying, just take a few moments in quiet, reflect on the cross. Has anything come to your mind that still causes you to feel a sense of shame? Take a few moments now so you can bring that before the risen Lord.
Father, sometimes we feel so undone. And we don't know what to do next. We just ask, Father, that you would give us courage in those moments to do what is most needed and cry out to you. Father, would you please bring healing to our deep wounds in Christ. We thank you for a great Savior like this. Father, great is your Son. He is making all things new. In his name we pray. Amen.